and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and guys, it hit me, uh, back in May, actually, it hit me that, you know what, son of a bitch, we're coming up on 20 years since the theatrical release of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Now, it was back in Episode 99 that I talked, I think, a considerable length about The Phantom Menace and subjected it to what I think is a pretty decent analysis and tried like hell to come up with some kind of new content, something original that you're not going to find just anywhere. Because guys, let's be realistic, you know, it's really hard to have a hot take on the prequels because... People have been talking the prequels to death online for like 20 years now. And so it really is hard to find a new angle on all of this. And so that's actually a theme I'm going to be circling back to in just a little while. But, you know, for right now, one of the things I don't think I've actually done a whole lot of on this show is talk about my Star Wars history, you know, and I guess what I mean by that is, you know, what exactly was my journey as a Star Wars fan, and how did I end up where I've ended up? And so, just as a disclaimer, you know, I recorded an episode with Professor Allen on the Quarterbin podcast, and this was just yesterday, in fact, that I recorded it. Now, when he's going to release it, I'm not actually sure. I'm guessing that by the time you guys hear this episode... My guest appearance on the Quarterbin podcast, if anything, is probably going to be old news at this point. But just as a, I guess, kind of as a disclaimer, some of what I'm about to say, I'm sure, is going to be pretty similar to what I said on the Quarterbin podcast. And for that, I do apologize. But number one, I do need to set the table on all of this. And number two, it stands to reason, with all due respect to Professor Allen, that not necessarily every single one of my listeners is a listener of the Relatively Geeky Network in general and the Quarterbin podcast in particular, right? That's just the way that it is. So forgive me if what I'm about to say is um, kind of a, a duplicate of what I said on the Quarterbin podcast, but here it is anyway. Uh, my my history as a as a Star Wars fan... My view of this is that people my age, and God knows, younger, we, we're we coming at Star Wars from just a fundamentally different point of view from the first wave of Star Wars fans. And that's just the nature of the beast, all right? We had the chance to grow up with Star Wars, whereas the first generation of fans, basically those kids that were kids in 1977 and then going forward from there, they didn't, they didn't really grow up with Star Wars, at least not in the same way that people my age did. When, when I don't know, Star Wars uh, fandom version 1.0, when they were growing up, they were somewhat they, they were somewhat there or at least they were well along in the process at the time that Star Wars 77 came out right and 
so for that reason, it's not a stretch to think that Star Wars 77 specifically, and one might even argue the Star Wars film series in general, maybe means more to them than it does to anyone else. I mean, there are people out there who make that argument. I'm either agreeing with that or disagreeing with that. I'm just saying what their what their logic is on that. But for, like I say, for people, you know, I guess you could say my generation and then going forward, Star Wars was one of those things that was always there. You know, I have never drawn breath in a world where Star Wars was not a household name. You know, I've just, that's not my life. That's, that's not my history. That's not how I grew up. I grew up watching the original trilogy and... I'm going to try to be careful about saying this, but... Uh, I It's not that I didn't like Star Wars, because I did, but this was one of those things that I didn't have a significant personal investment in. Does that make sense? I I enjoyed Star Wars 77, I enjoyed Empire, I, en I, I enjoyed Jedi. You know, I liked those movies, but... The sun rose and set for me whether Star Wars is part of my day-to-day -day life or not, you know, when I was a kid. And as I said in my uh, Batman 89 episode, Superman really was the primary mythological construct of my childhood. All roads for me ultimately lead back to Superman in some way or another. And so Star Wars, I guess you could say it was just part of the... It was part of the scenery for me, you know? It was part of the uh, geek lexicon, perhaps. Now, I was, you know, I, I am old enough that I remember what people have come to call the Star Wars Renaissance. Uh, obviously, Star Wars Mania started in 1977 and just continued from there. And then starting in 1983, it gradually began, I don't want to say dying, but becoming less intense. You know, Star Wars fandom from about 1984 to about, I don't know, like 1989. Some fans, and I get the idea they're not, they're only half kidding when they say this, but there, there's a segment of the fandom that, re that regards 1984 to about 1989 or so as the dark times. You know, it was a time when there really wasn't anything of significant import coming out with Star Wars. And to be fair to them, you know, there's a lot of people who are listening to this who might be thinking, um, hello, Marvel, Star Wars. Well, the people who were most likely to say that 1984 to 1989, those are the dark years of Star Wars, we're talking about people who were never really all that big on Marvel Star Wars to begin with anyway. So, just put all that in perspective, guys. So, not saying they're right, and I'm not saying they're wrong, I'm just saying that's their point of view. And then, starting with the Timothy Zahn uh, uh, trilogy of novels, the Thrawn trilogy, Star Wars, people started caring about it again, you know? Um, or maybe it's not even that they started caring about it again, they started... They, they had media that they could follow. There were, there were novels that they could read. There were 
new comics that they could collect. There were new action figures that they could buy, so on and so forth, you know. And really all of that started in, uh, I want to say the first Timothy Zahn book that came out in like 1990 or 1991, something like that. And it was right around then that I started collecting comics and basically following the geek community and it was impossible I think in 1991 and then God knows going forward from there it was impossible to be involved anywhere in comic book collecting and not have at least some kind of passing awareness of what's going on with Star Wars comics that were being published at Dark Horse with uh, the Star Wars EU novels that were being published by Bantam and then ultimately with those uh, uh, Power of the Force action figures that I think started getting released in like 1994, 1995, something like that is around there. You know, Star Wars was becoming a, a, a very strong and very noticeable presence in the geek community. And it was, it, it, it was just impossible to miss it, you know? And so... All of this was happening as I was getting my feet wet with collecting Batman back issues and, and following the Superman titles and, and all that stuff that that was happening in my own geek life. So I was aware of the things that were happening, but as I said on the Quarter Bin podcast, it's always been kind of hard for me to get my head around the idea of Star Wars comics, and I assume that's not a problem for most Star Wars fans, but it is a struggle that I've had for... Well, always, really. I mean, yeah, there are exceptions to that. I do enjoy Star Wars Tales, and there have been the odd Star Wars comics here and there that I've gotten into, apart from Star Wars Tales. But, you know, by and large, to me, Star Wars, it's not even just cinema, it's specifically feature film, you know? And yes, in theory, it can be other things, but to me, everything Star Wars is ultimately gonna be compared to the awesomeness of Star Wars 77 and how well, or for that matter, how not so well, it lines up with the energy and excitement of Star Wars 77. Not disrespecting anything else, I'm just saying that's my baggage, okay? That's, I guess, the prejudice that I'm bringing to all of this. And so, here again, I like Star Wars, but I just didn't really get into Star Wars comics. And this is not necessarily for no lack of trying on my part, all right? Um, I flipped through Star Wars comics on a semi-regular basis, I would say. And I think, at least for me, I don't know about anybody else, but at least for me, one of the problems that I've always had with Star Wars comics has always been that Star Wars comics have just, they've always kind of struggled with just shitty artists. You know, I don't know what it is about the Star Wars license that attracts all of these third-string, just fucking hack-job artists that I have no real value for but I, the list is long but it is distinguished i mean guys there this is there are a shit ton of names of artists who have drawn star wars most of whom i just don't really get into as much you know and so number one you know one problem i've got working against me with star wars comics is the comic format itself that i am not convinced works all that well for Star Wars. And then there's the fact that you know, even if I could somehow overcome that obstacle, and 
History's on my side. It, you know, I am capable of doing that, at least at certain times. But if I'm over, if I'm capable of overcoming that obstacle, the next obstacle is, like I say, just shit artists. I mean, I just don't really get into a lot of the art in the Star Wars comics that I've taken a look at. It just, I don't know what happens to these artists that a lot of them are actually otherwise gifted, but it's like the minute they start drawing a Star Wars comic, something just goes horribly wrong. I can't explain it. That's where we are. So, anyway. So there's that. So that takes us up through, I would say, the early 90s. And here again, it's it's Magnus, who likes Star Wars, or at least the trilogy. I, I like the Star Wars trilogy. But this other stuff that's going on with Star Wars just isn't really my blend. I don't love, at least back then, I didn't love the Star Wars trilogy so much that I, that, that I would want to go out and collect all the novels or buy all of the action figures or anything like that, you know? And as I hope, you know, I haven't gone to pains to say it, I hope, but I mean, I, I, I do think I've, or at least I hope I've made it clear that Star Wars comics of that time certainly were leaving me cold, you know? And even the ones that kind of had sort of interesting art, like Dark Empire, I just kind of have problems with the concept of Dark Empire, you know? Much less, you know, the directions that the story goes in and the big climax with Luke versus the Emperor's clone and just stupid fucking retarded shit like that. It's... anyway, so... I, basically what I'm saying is, guys, the deck was stacked against me. But nevertheless, my... I don't... <laughs> I don't want to lie to you guys. I don't want to give you the wrong impression and say that I was this huge Star Wars trilogy fan. Because like I say, I wasn't. I liked the movies in the same sense that, you know, I enjoy the Goonies. I, I like the Goonies. But I'm not... I, I don't sit there and just obsess over the Goonies. Oh my god. And then there was this one part where, you know, I thought the kids were going to die. You know, I just... I, 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 I don't do that, you know. And I certainly didn't do that about Star Wars, at least back then. But, like I say, you're, if you're coming of age as a comic book fan in the late 80s and then getting into the 90s, it is impossible to miss the energy and excitement and enthusiasm that the Star Wars brand has right now that, guys, it didn't always have. I mean, you don't need the memory of an elephant to recall a time when... Again, I don't want to say that nobody cared about Star Wars, but... It's just like there was nothing going on with Star Wars fandom, you know? In 1994, you didn't have to cast your memory back very far to, re to remember a time when there just wasn't all that much going on. But I, by, just to kind of pick a year at random here, by 1994, there, you know, there were new comics that were coming out. The novels were, uh, at that point, I think a cottage industry for Bantam. Um, I think the Power of the Force uh, uh, action figure line had been announced by then. And, of course, we cannot overlook the fact that, oh yeah, there are new Star Wars movies on the horizon. And so, it. I guess what I'm saying is, you couldn't miss the energy that was going on back then. But like I say, you know, I, I enjoyed the original Star Wars trilogy, but I didn't really so much get into a lot of that other stuff, you know? And that was more or less the state of affairs until May of 1999, 20 years, well, a little bit more than 20 years ago, but 20 years ago, I, 
I saw The Phantom Menace with uh, some friends of mine from school twice in one day. And that ended up becoming a little bit of a tradition for us with uh, the, the uh, prequels. As they were coming out, we would see them twice in one day. And so certainly, you know, we were setting uh, precedent at that time. We went to see uh, The Phantom Menace twice in one day. And this is going to be maybe a controversial opinion for some people. And I guess for that, I apologize. But the truth is the truth, whether anyone likes it or not. Up to then, I don't know that it would have been accurate to call me a Star Wars fan. Because, you know, I enjoyed the movies. I would rarely change the channel if Star Wars was on TV, just any of the movies was on TV. I would rarely change the channel, but there is a possibility that I might change the channel, unlikely though it might seem. And I, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I was not personally invested in Star Wars as a film series. And it was really The Phantom Menace that, that began changing that, you know? It took this story that I enjoyed, had no problem with, had never had anything against, And it gave it a depth and scope that, you know, looking back at it, the Star Wars trilogy always had, but I guess I just never really fully appreciated it. Maybe that's the best way to put it, you know? Uh, this backstory that, that goes on with the fall of the Republic and uh, uh, Palpatine uh, uh, claiming absolute power for himself, Anakin's descent into the dark side, and, you know, what exactly are these Clone Wars anyways? and all that stuff, those questions were either answered by The Phantom Menace or they started getting set up to be answered in The Phantom Menace. And I came out of, I, I went into The Phantom Menace, I was basically just there, I was along for the ride. This was clearly the movie event of the year. No offense to The Matrix, no offense to Fight Club or any of those other movies that came out in 1999. But it would be fair to say that, the, that episode one, without question, was the movie event of 1999. So I went into this thing just kind of enjoying the, the atmosphere of all of this, all of these excited Star Wars fans. They finally got a new movie and all this fun stuff. And, but not really having any kind of personal investment in it myself. And that's how I went into the movie. Coming out of the movie, blown the fuck away. It's like, wow, this this really uh, elaborate backstory is wow. And 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 all these all this shit happened. And oh my god, you know, like what's coming in the future and all this stuff. And you know, I remember the summer of 1999 and immersing myself in all things Star Wars and for the first time truly appreciating the the scope and the breadth of of the Star Wars trilogy all these things that I would say the core Star Wars fans were always they were generally aware of I mean obviously they didn't have access to the prequels but this is still stuff that they knew or at least suspected that the prequels were were, were going to give us and so for them this I I suppose it was more like a payoff something that they've been waiting for for a very long time now whereas for me this was not a payoff this was more of like a revelation it was like holy shit i had no idea that the history of star wars was going to be uh this cool 
And so I tended to focus on the things that I enjoyed about The Phantom Menace the most. And guys, I was there, okay? Uh, maybe I wasn't there for Star Wars all through my childhood and whatnot, but I was there. I was fucking there. In the summer of 1999, I know how things really went. And yes, there, were, there was a very loud and very vocal backlash against the Phantom Menace from certain Star Wars fans. And I think it's a bit unfair, uh, and it's also a little bit reductive, to point the finger at Jar Jar and just say that's everything that's wrong. Because to be fair to these, to these kind of disgruntled Star Wars fans, their critique of the Phantom Menace, yes, it includes Jar Jar, but it also goes a lot deeper than that. You know, it's just Jar Jar is sort of the lightning rod for all of that. And I, it's not that I liked Jar Jar. I really didn't. And again, we'll circle back to that as well. I really didn't like Jar Jar, but I mean, to me, the issue with The Phantom Menace was that the good far outweighed the bad, at least at that time. You know, now, these days, I would say I've probably got a little bit more of a tempered view of Episode 1, and if you want to hear what that tempered view is, uh, track down Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, Episode 99. It's there. Look for it. And I'll tell you, I'll get right up and tell you what I, what I really do think, you know? But... Like I say, you know, the the good far outweighed the bad. At least in the summer of 1999, as far as I was concerned, there was more good going on with The Phantom Menace than there was bad. And I really did not understand where all of these disgruntled fans were coming from. And again, as I said in the Quarterbin podcast that I did with Professor Allen, well, he and I recorded it yesterday, but I, again, I have no idea when you guys... Uh, might he, might be able to to listen to it, but you know, as I said in the uh, the uh, uh, quarter bin show, it it really took the the theatrical re-release of the Phantom Menace in 2012 for me to kind of start understanding where the naysayers were coming from, you know, or the bashers as they were known back in 1999, to to kind of get an idea of where the bashers were coming from with all of their myriad criticisms and grievances with The Phantom Menace. And I'm not here to say that I changed my mind and I'm now a basher myself. If you've heard episode 99, you know better than that. But at the same time, they're not wrong about everything. I mean, they've got a fair point, at least on some things. And it's kind of dishonest for me to spend all these years calling myself a Star Wars fan while at the same time maybe not publicly acknowledging how many scenes in The Phantom Menace I skipped past when I would do a rewatch with my DVD or just whatever. And it is fair to say, I think, that the Bashers, at least on some things, they had a fair point. And so, what I normally tell people is that my view of The Phantom Menace is that there are a ton of really good ideas that are, that are just all over the place in The Phantom Menace. George Lucas took a lot of creative risks and chances that, frankly, he could have not taken and maybe benefited from. I mean, I don't... I mean, things might have 
turned out better for him in the long run if he just sort of phoned it in with the prequels, you know? And we'll never know, but anyway, having said all of that, there is a lot of bad with the prequels. And yes, that does include Jar Jar, but there's there's more going on with the weaknesses of The Phantom Menace than just Jar Jar. And to me, it's kind of dishonest if you say that Jar Jar is the only thing that's wrong with that movie. I mean, there are other problems. Now, again, there are some great ideas in The Phantom Menace. There are things I wouldn't change even if I had the chance. But the fact remains that there are some very serious problems with that movie. So, yes, there's some good. Yes, there's some bad. I don't, even now, I don't think that the bad necessarily cancels out the good. But we're not really doing our job very much if we don't acknowledge that, yes, there is, a, there is some bad in The Phantom Menace. You might even say there's a lot of bad in The Phantom Menace. So, anyway, it's not so... This is the point, I guess. It's not so simple as to say that The Phantom Menace is good or that it's bad. It's a mixed bag. Maybe that's the best way to say it. So, anyhow. Now... That's not where I was coming from with The Phantom Menace in 2010. In 2010, I was generally an admirer of it. I was a, I was generally an admirer of the entire prequel trilogy, in fact, in 2010. But there were a lot of people who had a whole lot of shit to say about the prequels in general and perhaps The Phantom Menace in particular. And they finally got a chance to say their piece in a documentary called The People versus George Lucas. And so what I wanted to do for this episode is, number one, kind of give you a little bit of history of my Star Wars fandom and just kind of salute the fact that, yes, it has been 20 years since The Phantom Menace came out. God, it doesn't even feel like it's been that long, but yeah, indeed it has. But... I also wanted to talk about The People versus George Lucas, at least a little bit, because it's not quite 10 years of The People versus George Lucas, but it's, I don't know, it's, it's fairly close. Now, guys, I don't know George Lucas, okay? I have never met George Lucas, um, never talked to him, we don't trade emails or texts or smoke signals, nothing, all right? I've never had any kind of contact with George Lucas, no contact whatsoever, all right? Hell, I'll even go further than that and say I've never even met anybody who even works for Lucasfilm, all right? I'm just one asshole who's got a microphone. Nothing more, nothing less. Having said all of that, I've been nursing uh, a certain conspiracy theory for a pretty long time now, and this episode seems like as good a place as any to talk about that and also just say my piece about what a fucking piece of shit I think The People versus George Lucas, the documentary, really is, you know? But my conspiracy theory is... Actually, you know what? We'll circle back to that. The People versus George Lucas, it's basically a documentary made by, some might say, for, and most certainly about 
the disgruntled Star Wars fan, the first generation of Star Wars fans, the 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 gang of fans that were kids when Star Wars 77 came out, they followed uh, everything to do with the entire Star Wars franchise uh, into their adult years. And I'm talking about fans here, fan fans, all right? And they felt bitterly fucking betrayed by episode one. Now, guys, in case I haven't made it clear to anybody yet, Superman Returns is my Phantom Menace. I mean, for me, Superman Returns is this fucking rejectile piece of shit movie that I'd waited three quarters of my life for up to that point. And all I had to show for it was Brandon fucking Routh dancing around in this little pleather cape and he's reciting old Christopher Reeve lines. And it was just, God, I fucking hated that movie. I felt fucking, I felt betrayed by that movie, stabbed in the back, uh, whatever you want to call it, you know, whatever euphemism you want to use. That's how I felt about that. I mean, you want to talk about let down. I felt let the hell down by Superman Returns. But guys, what I did not do is start looking around for funding so that I can create a documentary about how much I hated Superman Returns and talk to other people who hated Superman Returns and all of that. You know, it's I didn't like the movie. And yeah, I was in a really fucking bad mood there for quite a few years, in fact, uh, about Superman Returns. But at the end of the day, It's ultimately it's one movie. History has forgotten it for the most part and life goes on, you know, and I recognize the fact that history has the ability to forget about a certain Superman movie. It doesn't have the ability to forget about a certain Star Wars movie. You put the Star Wars logo on any movie and that's meaningful and it's permanent. It's always going to be there. And so I'm trying to be fair to the people who made the people uh, versus George Lucas and uh, the uh, the talking head commentators who appeared in the people versus George Lucas. But it's like at the end of the day, guys, I mean, I did not feel the way about the Phantom Menace that they felt. All right. I felt that way. The way they felt about the Phantom Menace is to a degree the way I felt about Superman Returns. But, you know, guys, the vitriol that is all through the people versus George Lucas is it's just off the fucking scale. Now, guys, again, we do need to kind of give the devil his due here a little bit and say, as with the bashers, many of of these people I'm convinced were bashers back in 1999. But as we were fair to the bashers, let's be fair to these people as well. They do have a point on certain things, okay? They they do offer some fair criticism of the prequels, all right? I'm willing to acknowledge that much, but it's like at the same time, I mean, guys, there's a very strong argument that George Lucas raped my childhood is the first internet meme, and I don't remember one before then, but, you know, maybe there was, and I'm just kind of blanking on it, but as far as I can remember, George Lucas raped my childhood is the the first internet meme and if these people weren't saying that most of these people weren't saying that back in 1999 
At the very least, they probably agreed with the general sentiment behind that. Now, boys and girls, we need to be very honest about something, okay? George Lucas got a divorce in 1983, right? He lost most of his for his Star Wars fortune. He lost most of it in 1983. And he was able to continue on. I mean, he was, he was rich. Don't get me wrong. He was rich all through the eighties, all through the nineties. He was by any sane standard. George Lucas was a very rich man, but what he had was a mere pittance compared to what he lost in his divorce settlement. Right. And my point in saying that is to say this, the guy scratched together every penny he had to his name so that he could personally finance the making of The Phantom Menace. Guys, you need to understand this, all right? Triple underline this. If The Phantom Menace had failed at the box office, George Lucas would not have been able to make episodes two and three, okay? That would have been the end of the line for Star Wars films. Probably forever, but certainly for a very long time. All right, he took one of the biggest financial gambles in all of history... And he won big on it. You know, I do remember that there was a a lot of criticism about The Phantom Menace for how commercial it was, how safe in a lot of ways it was, how marketable it was, you know, market friendly, how overhyped it was, how over merchandised it was. Guys, those were all decisions that George Lucas made on purpose. All right. He, like I say, he basically... He cobbled together every dollar he had to his name and invested it in the movie. And what he had to do was find a way to recoup his investment one way or the other, you know, so that he doesn't end up homeless out on the streets. All right. And so what he did was anybody who wanted a merchandising deal for the Phantom Menace. Yeah, sure. You can do it. Pay me. Hey, uh, George Lucas puts on his uh, producer hat. And uh, he says to George Lucas wearing his screenwriter's hat, make sure you write a commercial script, all right? We need this thing to be as marketable and inoffensive as possible. Um, all the better to recoup his investment, you know? Um, just on and on and on. Anybody who offered George Lucas money related to The Phantom Menace, he probably accepted their offer such that by the time the last piece of... Phantom Menace-related merchandise rolled off the assembly lines. Whether the movie failed at the box office or, or not, George Lucas had already recouped his investment, okay? That's what I think happened. I will not be persuaded otherwise unless George himself comes out to set the record straight. That's what I think happened, all right? He spent every single nickel he had to his name to make a movie, and he wanted people to love his movie. And for his trouble, he was, ironically or unironically, for his trouble, he was called a rapist. Let that sink in, guys. Somebody goes out there, all he wants to do is make a movie that people love and are entertained by, and he's called a rapist. George Lucas raped my childhood. That's basically what, when, when, when people said that back in the old days, that's basically what they were saying. George Lucas, guy that I've never met before and don't even know. 
you're a rapist. And I can kind of understand where it's like, what the fuck? I mean, you want to talk about reacting way out of proportion to, to what this thing really is. I mean, it's one thing to say, well, I just didn't really like this movie because of X, Y, and Z. You know, look, it's one thing to say that. To call the fucking guy a rapist, what the fuck? But I get the idea, like I say, that at least some of these people featured in The People versus George Lucas, at least some of them in 1999, probably unironically were saying that George Lucas raped their childhoods. And, oh, what? And anyway, and I, I... I understand that a lot of the ideas and sentiments and God help us, the values that are expressed in the people versus George Lucas, it goes a lot deeper than just that. Like I say, there is some thoughtful commentary. There is some, there, there are a few fair and valid points that do get raised. Objective criticism is made in some cases, but at the end of the day, the people who regard the people versus George Lucas as some kind of an anti-Lucas sort of screed, they've got a leg to stand on, people. I mean, this much, I think, is undeniable. Now, not everybody involved with uh, appearing in the people versus George Lucas is an asshole, okay? I am not making that argument. There was some guy, I think he was a writer from Cracked. He was some bearded, long-hair-looking guy. Uh, he made a few fair points. Um, there was, I think the guy's name is Jay Sylvester, but whatever the guy, the, the admin guy from OriginalTrilogy.com, he appeared in The People vs. George Lucas, and he was fine. I mean, if you just listen to his comments, Jay Sylvester, I think is his name, just listen to his comments. He makes fair and valid points. He doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't call uh, people names that I can remember or anything like that. He just says, hey, I like the original versions better. And so I started a petition where people who prefer the original versions can ask for the original versions. You know, but he, he doesn't get carried away. He doesn't, you know, uh, light his hair on fire or anything like that. He's just very calm and level-headed. He's just a guy who has an opinion, you know? That's who he is. That's how he's presented in uh, in the documentary. And I've, just full disclosure, I've traded emails with the guy a few times. That's pretty much, as far as I can tell, that's truly who he is. You know, he's just one guy with an opinion. That's, that's the, that's how I think he sees himself. I think he sees himself as just a regular guy who's, who's got an opinion, right? That's, that's just the impression I get from him. So I, in case I'm not being clear, I obviously have no problem with him. But some of these other people in The People versus George Lucas, I mean, you want to talk about going way too far. And in a certain sense, I would even, I would even throw Matt Parker and Trey Stone. Or wait, is it Trey Parker? Well, fuck the South Park guys, whatever their fucking names are. You know, they made an episode of South Park where... George Lucas, far from just being called a rapist, he's literally shown to be a fucking rapist, right? And what I want to say is 
watching this, I was actually, even though I kind of have my own reservations and my own differences of opinion with Lucas when it comes to the the Star Wars prequels, I was actually mad for him when I saw that crap documentary, you know? And I'm going to share another conspiracy theory with you guys. I said I'd come back to this, and so now I'm coming coming back to it. I think that Lucas, somehow, he saw the people versus George Lucas, right? I don't know who in his right mind would show George Lucas that documentary, but I think he saw it. I think he watched it. And I think that was maybe the straw that broke the camel's back for for George Lucas. I think that was that was the the thing, the singular event that broke him. That's what I believe. I think that George Lucas watched that piece of shit documentary and he said, "You know what? Nothing is worth this. There's no amount of money in the world that's worth being subjected to this kind of invective and abuse. I'm out. I'm done. I'm going to sell my company. I'm going to sell my IPs. And I'm going to dive into a hole and I'm pulling it in after me. I am finished. I think that was the moment that Lucas decided to sell Lucasfilm. That's what I think. And, you know, the uh, the documentary ends on this just... just such a disingenuous note of all these people that had spent the entire runtime of the documentary up to that point running Lucas down and calling him everything in the book, and I think tacitly agreeing with that just fucking idiotic George Lucas raped my childhood meme. And then, you know, it's like at the last minute they try to take it all back. Oh, well, we love you, George. You know, it's too little too late, you know? I think that the people versus George Lucas is what broke George Lucas. I think that he... For God only knows what reason he watched that piece of shit documentary. And I think that was the moment when he decided that enough is enough. I think that Lucas made his final decision when he saw that documentary. Chris, when you, when you think about what the timing was, I will remember this moment for the rest of my life. It was October the 31st, which is to say Halloween, October the 31st. Uh, 2012, the announcement came down the pipeline that George Lucas is selling Lucasfilm. Well, he said that he and uh, he and uh, what's his name, Iger, Bob Iger, or whoever from uh, Disney, they'd been negotiating this deal for about a year. You know, what are what are the terms of the sale, and what's going to happen, and 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 all of this, and yeah, you know, for a uh, you know, putting aside the 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 other. Uh, IPs and whatnot that Lucasfilm owns. Obviously, what Disney bought for real was Star Wars. And I could see where hammering out the details of that uh, of that deal 
yeah, it really could take a year to work out all the details, you know? And uh, it doesn't it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination. So that means that Lucas, it, let's just take him at his little literal word, right? The the uh, sale was announced on October the thirty first, twenty twelve. So we'll say that negotiations started on October the twenty uh, the the thirty first, twenty eleven. Yeah, that actually sounds about right, guys. Uh, he would have seen the documentary. He would have started getting his personal affairs uh, in order uh, so as to facilitate the sale. And I could see where it maybe took several months for him to finally get to a level where he can sit down and finally start talking seriously with Disney about selling his company. And then from there, it taking a just about a full year to work out uh, the deal and the terms and the dollar amount and all that fun stuff. And yeah, I, I, I can absolutely see where it, you know, to me, it's just the timing is just a little bit too perfect. I can, uh, yeah, yeah, I can easily imagine, easily imagine that George Lucas watched the people versus George Lucas said, fuck this, I'm out of here. And we saw the fruits of that beginning on, uh, beginning on October the 31st, 2012. And at least for me, guys, I've said it before, but this is kind of a Star Wars sort of centric episode, so I'm just going to go ahead and say it again anyway. I don't in any way at all approve of how Disney has managed Star Wars. I don't approve of any of it. I I saw Rogue One... And that because uh, a listener of this show, Curtis King, you know, he, I want to be fair about it. You know, he's like, look, I really do think that you would get a kick out of this. And indeed I did. You know, I, I rather enjoy Rogue One, in fact. But for me, what I've come to understand is that Star Wars as a film series, it started with Star Wars 77 it continued with Empire, and then it concluded with Jedi. That's Star Wars for me. Uh, this other stuff, you know, uh, these other movies, maybe they have good, good ideas going on in them, and maybe they don't. But for me, they're not canon. That's not part of the story. Not really. Um, these uh, comics, they're probably not to my taste, but whatever. In their place, they're just fine. Same thing with the novels. Those things are just fine. But for me, Star Wars is three films. The first was released in 1977. The next one was released in 1980. The final one was released in 1983. To me, that's, that's the Star Wars saga. That's it right there. And I don't approve of the way that Disney has handled this property. I don't like what they've done with the movies. I saw The Force Awakens, and that, it basically confirmed all of my worst fears and trepidations about where Disney was going to go with this property, and sure enough, they went there, and based on everything that I've heard about uh, The Last Jedi, I have no reason whatsoever to change my mind, and I, look, speaking of changing minds, I'm not trying to change your mind. If you're sitting there, and you're 
watching these uh, Disney Star Wars movies and you're just loving it, you can't get enough of them. The only criticism you have of Disney Star Wars is that we're not getting 5 million more Disney Star Wars movies right now because you love them that much and you just want more and more and more. Hey, look, I am not trying to change your mind. You enjoy your movies. I, I, I hope... I hope that when um, episode nine, the I think it's called The Rise of Skywalker. I hope those of you listening who love Disney Star Wars, if anybody, those of you listening who love Disney Star Wars, I hope that uh, The Rise of Skywalker or whatever episode nine is called. Dude, I hope this movie is everything you dreamed of. I hope this movie is is more than you dreamed of. I hope this is the greatest cinematic experience that you ever have in your entire life. All right? Until the next Star Wars movie comes out. And then you love that one even more. Okay? I'm not trying to take anything away from you. If you love these movies, dude, good for you. I I would be the last person to try to ruin your good time. I'm just telling you that I don't get into them as much. They pretty much left me cold. And I don't really want to have anything to do with them. You know? If you enjoy them, if you disagree with me, that's fine. As far as I'm concerned, we're still friends. You know, there's no nothing personal between us. I just don't enjoy these movies and I don't care to watch them. That's all, you know. But like I say, last thing I'd want to do is change your mind or ruin your fun. I think there's plenty of that on the Internet as it is. You know, I'm sure there are a ton of people out there who would be more than happy to tell you why you're stupid because you love those movies. I'm not saying that, you know, hell, if anything, I envy you. I wish I was in your place, but I'm just not. And I look at stupid fucking retarded bullshit like the people versus George Lucas. And I can't help but think, you know what? You fucking assholes are the ones ultimately who took Star Wars away from me. That's how I see it. Because maybe I'm wrong. Certainly, there's no way to prove me right or wrong. So, again, take this little conspiracy theory with as many grains of salt as you see fit. But I'm of the opinion that the people versus George Lucas is what broke George Lucas. That's what made him decide to sell out to Disney. And Disney, they have, as far as I'm concerned, again, if you love Disney Star Wars, feel free to disagree with me. But I think Disney, they've driven Star Wars straight in the fucking ground. And all of that, as far as I'm concerned, goes back to the people versus George Lucas. So, 20 years of The Phantom Menace, which I don't love as much now as I did when it first came out, but I still think, you know, there are a lot of good ideas going on there, and it's certainly better than its reputation would suggest. And almost 10 years of... The People versus George Lucas, which is at least 12 years too many by any stretch of the de- uh, uh, of whatever. I just I, I just kind of resent the the people versus George Lucas. I resent the people that that made it. Not necessarily everybody who appears in it, but the general sentiment of that documentary is basically one big middle finger to George Lucas, and my personal opinion is that documentary is what made him decide to sell Lucasfilm, and now Disney has produced nothing but, as far as I'm concerned, shitty Star Wars movies, and so I give a big middle finger 
to the people who made the People versus George Lucas. Way to go, guys. You went from the frying pan straight into the fire. Way to fucking go, guys. So, <clears throat> anyway, I hate to end on such a bitter and angry and ranty note. So, let me just uh, reiterate that what I'm trying to do right now is uh, talk about movies. Uh, basically, not even so much movies, so much as not talk about comics. Because I released all those Legion of Superheroes episodes. And so, what I wanted to do was just talk about uh, something not comics. Uh, for a little while before we get going into even more comics and basically just try to mix up my content on a little bit more of a uh, uh, better basis or a more consistent basis so instead of having like 90% comics and 10% uh, everything else well maybe just try to change that ratio a bit so I released an episode about Batman 89 I've released an episode and in fact recording an episode right now about, in part, Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, but also The People versus George Lucas. And in the next couple of weeks, I got other more TV-related stuff, but still some other non-comic book stuff uh, going on. Before I uh, dive right back into some comics, I'm not completely sure what I'm gonna um, what I'm gonna talk about after I get you know these uh, two or three TV episodes I've got in mind. Once I've got those things out of the way. I don't know exactly where I'm going to go, at least to start with, but uh, in short order, I'm going to be working my way back to some uh, to some comics, and uh, that's pretty much that. That's the plan, but it's not even a plan. It's just a general expectation. I'm here to tell you, I don't abide by a plan anymore, so plans can change, but that, if I were a betting man, that's where I would say that things are going to go. So anyway, subject to change, though. But either way, I think that's pretty much it for me for this week, though. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. 
The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void were prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. Oh, 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 oh,